Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken firstly from Deuteronomy chapter 23, the verses 2 through 8. Secondly, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And finally, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the verses 12 through 16. So firstly, Deuteronomy 23, the verses 2 through 8. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So far, so we'll head to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. One, 1 Corinthians 3, Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And we'll turn to chapter 7, verses 12 through to 16. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So far... The text for the sermon this afternoon is uh, taken from Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 541 of the Book of Praise. Let's read that together. Lord's Day 27, question and answer 72. 
Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But, even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptised? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. So far. After the sermon, we'll sing as our Amen song, Psalm 139, the verses 7, 8 and 9. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something I love about the sacraments. They're so simple and yet so complex. Think about baptism. It's such a simple thing. In baptism, the minister sprinkles a little water onto a new Christian or on the child of a believer. It's such a simple thing, but it's packed with meaning. Baptism teaches us about the simple gospel message, the washing away of our sins. That simple message is something a young child can understand, but baptism also shows the depths of what Christ has accomplished for us. The most seasoned theologian will never be done exploring those, de those depths. But of course, what is one of the best things about baptism? God has given us this sacrament to strengthen our faith. I think we all know that in theory. Probably most of us have heard that before. But let's get practical. The last time you struggled in faith, did you think about your baptism? And to help you grow in faith, do you ever think about your baptism? Well, this is one reason why God gave us baptism. Baptism, as a sacrament, is a means of grace. God will use it to help us grow in faith. That's what we want to explore some more of this afternoon. We will see, in baptism, God teaches and assures us about his gospel promises in Jesus Christ. We are assured of the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood and the inclusion of our children among God's people. One major theme found in the Bible is the theme of washing. Think only of God's covenant with Israel. When people became ceremonially unclean, they went through a cleansing ritual. When the priests entered the service, their service to God, they had to wash themselves. God's promises to his people sometimes involved washing as well. 
God said to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give in you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This theme is carried through to the New Testament. Listen only to Titus chapter 3 verse 5. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Why does this theme of washing appear throughout the Bible? It's because sin has stained us. It has defiled our hearts. Our souls are dirty from sin. Scripture teaches us something important about this. People stained with sin cannot just come into God's presence. God is holy, holy, holy. He cannot look upon sin. Think of the Old Testament temple. The priests had to go through elaborate cleansing rituals. God was teaching everyone that if you wanted to come before him, you had to be made clean. But not only that, God was assuring us that if sinners were indeed washed, then they could come before him. God makes it possible for people stained with sin to be washed clean. This is what baptism pictures for us. Remember, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, instituted baptism. This is a sacrament given by God himself. God is showing us by this sacrament that he has made a way that we can be cleansed from every stain of sin. Through this washing, we can come into his presence. In baptism, water is sprinkled on a person. It's meant to assure you that your sins have been washed away. Now, when I say that, perhaps you immediately ask the same question as Lord's Day 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? Here we confess in answer 72, no. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Think of the ceremonial washings and sacrifices in the Old Testament. What did it all point to? They all pointed to the shedding of blood for purification, to be cleansed from sin. In the Old Testament, God was always pointing to the need for blood to solve the problem of sin. It all pointed ahead to the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. The New Testament is clear that the blood of Jesus Christ for the washing away of our sins is received by faith. Think of what the Spirit says through Peter about the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. God cleansed their hearts by faith. Think of what the Spirit says through Paul in Romans 3, verse 25. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. So we receive Christ's blood and sacrifice by faith. Baptism is meant to strengthen your faith in these things for your salvation. Baptism is an outward washing. Water is sprinkled on a person, but it's meant to assure you of an inward reality. Christ's blood has washed away your sins. 
Listen to the powerful effect of Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians 3 describes the amazing reality of the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? This is the power of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. In the Old Covenant, only the priests were allowed into the temple. Only the high priest could enter the innermost sanctuary where God was. He only entered there once per year. But now, the Spirit of God lives in his church. The church is the New Testament temple. Paul will also tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that individual believers are also temples of the Holy Spirit. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his cleansing blood has made this possible. Hebrews 10 speaks about the power of Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, By Jesus' obedience we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And finally, Hebrews 10 verse 14, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is why we can be the temples of the Holy Spirit. Christ's blood offered in his sacrifice makes it a reality. Baptism is a means to assure you that these things are a reality for you. Not just someone else in the pew. Not for the people who seem to have their life all put together. It's meant to assure you that, those powerful, that these powerful saving benefits are for you. Believe it with all your heart. By believing these things, you will bear fruit. Listen to question and answer 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by his divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Here we see the double cleansing pictured in baptism. Answer 73 speaks about the cleansing of both Christ's blood and spirit. To understand this double cleansing, perhaps an illustration will help. It might sound a bit strange at first, but I think it can help to get the point across. Imagine for a moment that you own a property with a lot of garbage on it. You want to get rid of all that garbage. Instead of bringing your garbage to the landfill, you decide that you are going to dump it all in a local parking lot to save money. So now, that parking lot is filled with your garbage. And guess what happens? The Shire Ranger comes around and he says, you're littering. You've broken the law. You need to do two things. First, you need to pay a fine. But second, you also need to get rid of this garbage. But there is good news. You have two friends who are going to help you out. One of them is rich. He graciously pays the expensive fines that you don't need to. The other one owns a truck and a front-end loader. He's going to help you get rid of all the garbage and bring it to the dump. 
This illustration pictures the reality of sin in our hearts. Our hearts have all been filled with the pollution of sin. We have all stained ourselves with sin. That sin is a violation of God's law. In response, God tells us we need to do two things. We need to pay a penalty for polluting our hearts with sin, and that penalty is death. We also need the pollution of sin to be removed. The beautiful message baptism pictures for us is this. God himself provides these two things for us. Christ himself steps in and has paid the penalty for our sins with his own blood. Our record of debt is washed away by Christ's blood. The threat of condemnation no longer stands over believers. He paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross. But not only that, the Holy Spirit also begins to work in our hearts to remove the pollution of sin. He works in your heart to remove all the garbage that's there. The Holy Spirit is living water. By his power, he will work to cleanse away every dirty thing and everything rotten from your heart and your life. This is the double cleansing spoken of by the Catechism. This helps you in a very real way in your life. When you see the sin in your life and in your heart, I urge you to think about it. Think about baptism. Think about the message it sends. And then come to God in faith. Ask him to forgive your sins through the blood of Christ, knowing that Christ's blood has paid the full price. Ask him to cleanse you from the pollution of sin by the power of the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is powerful to cleanse you. Ask God these things, and also trust that these things are yours in Christ Jesus. Now, having said these things, that leads us also to the next logical question. Should infants too be baptised? This is the question asked at the end of Lord's Day 27. You can understand why the question comes up. We have just been talking about the washing away of our sins by Christ's blood. I told you that the water of baptism does not by itself wash away our sins. Rather, this washing is received by faith in Christ's blood. The reality is that infants do not have faith. It's logical that we should then ask, should infants receive baptism? We as Reformed believers have answered this question with an emphatic yes. Yes, infants too should be baptised. That's what we confess in Lord's Day 27 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 27 gives the following reason for this answer. Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. The reason why the children of believers must be baptised is because they have a certain status, a covenantal status. 
Baptism marks this out for them. Now, some people believe the Bible is unclear about this whole matter, about infant baptism. After all, there is not one clear example of an infant being baptised in the New Testament. Other people perhaps think to themselves, well, I can kind of see where the Reformed churches are coming from with their infant baptism, but I don't think they have a really strong case. Maybe you have had thoughts and doubts like that before. Maybe we think the Bible is unclear about the matter. However, I would say to you that the biblical case for infant baptism is in fact crystal clear. Today, if I were to look at this truth from our reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at the specific words here and explore them in the light of the Old Testament background. Some of this background was brought to my attention by a colleague some time ago. It's really quite beautiful when you see it. To begin, let me give you the most basic argument for infant baptism. In the sight of God, are the children of believers considered clean or unclean? Now, we might immediately say the children are unclean. After all, they are conceived and born in sin. And, indeed, if we view the children of believers only by their nature, we would have to say they are unclean. However... What does Paul say about the children of believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? He says, your children are not unclean. We will look at the reason Paul uses this language in a moment. However, one thing this language undoubtedly shows us is that the children of believers should be baptised. Paul says that the children of believers are not unclean. Therefore, they must receive baptism to mark their clean status. After all, baptism, done with water, marks out who is considered clean. If we withhold baptism from infants, we would be declaring by that act that the children of believers are unclean. But this is the very opposite of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now at this point, we might ask... Why does Paul say that the children of believers are clean and holy here if they are conceived and born in sin? First, let's be clear on what he's not saying. The Apostle Paul is not saying that original sin has been washed away in infants. He is not saying that the children of believers are born without a sinful nature or that the water of baptism has washed away their sins, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches he is also not saying that children of believers are regenerated or born again. Instead, we must understand that Paul is using Old Testament language here. Think of the word holy. The word holy was often used to describe the people God set apart for himself. In Exodus chapter 19, God tells Israel that they will be for him a holy nation. Think also of the language of clean and unclean. In the Old Testament, clean and unclean referred to who could be part of the assembly of God's people. Those who were unclean had to be removed from the assembly of God's people. They were not allowed to be part of it. The unclean people had to be removed from the camp where God lives, among his people. But those who were clean belonged to that assembly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 
that the children of believers are not unclean. This means they belong to the assembly of God's people in the New Testament. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, the infant children were not allowed to be part of God's holy people. We read about one example in Deuteronomy 23, where Moses talks about the children born to certain mixed marriages. If an Israelite man was married to an Ammonite woman, for example, their children had to be excluded from the assembly of God's holy people. In the case of those mixed marriages, the infants took on the unclean and unholy status of the non-Israelite parent. There are other examples in the Old Testament. However, the amazing thing is that this situation is reversed in the New Covenant. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7. In this section, we read of Paul explaining what should be done in mixed marriages. In the early church, it often happened that people who became Christians were already married to someone. Many times, the person's spouse did not become a Christian along with them, but stayed an unbeliever. So the Corinthians had asked Paul, should should the Christian spouse divorce his or her unbelieving husband or wife? The question makes sense. They probably wondered, does staying married to this person or engaging in in a sexual relationship with him or her defile me? Does it affect my status before God? And what about our children? Does being married to this person affect the status of my child? Do they have to be excluded from the assembly of God's people, like the children described in Deuteronomy 23? You can see why this would come up. The Old Testament, usually a clean thing became unclean when it it came into contact with something unclean. Usually the holy thing became defiled by the unclean thing. However, here in 1 Corinthians 7, things are different. Why? Well, there were some situations in the Old Testament when an unclean thing was made holy. This happened if it touched something most holy. In that case, the most holy object made the other object holy. One example is the Old Testament temple. Jesus alludes to this when he says about the temple in Matthew 23, what is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy or sanctifies the gold? Why is this significant? Well, what does Paul say about the church in 1 Corinthians 3? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say about the individual believers in 1 Corinthians 6? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. The believing spouse's status as a temple of the Holy Spirit overcomes the, clean, the unclean status of the unbeliever. This does not mean that the unbeliever has been saved. Someone can be holy without being regenerated. There are plenty of examples of that in the Old Testament. However, it does mean that the union between the believer and the unbeliever has not affected the holy, clean status of their children. This is one reason why the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Children born into mixed marriages belong to the assembly of God's people.
just as much as the children born to two believers do. Just as much, they are no different. The same goes for children adopted into a family with one believing parent. Now, let's be clear on one thing. This is not to give the go-ahead to single members seeking a spouse to find an unbelieving husband or wife. The Bible strongly warns us against this kind of thing. However, if any Christian does ever happen to find himself or herself married to someone who does not believe, this has not affected the holy and clean status of their children. Or if a child finds himself or herself in the situation where one parent is a Christian and the other is not, that child should never need doubt his or her status. The promises of God are for them just the same. All the children born to believers, whether one believer or to two believers, are holy just the same. They are clean. They all belong in the assembly of God's people. And so they all must be baptised. It's important for us to see this. But we should know this, not just so that we happily continue baptising infants. Rather, there are some very practical applications to this. First of all, there is encouragement. God has made his covenant with our children. Parents, God is there to help you and guide you as parents. Seek his help. Encourage your children with the promises of God in Christ. Children, God is eager to guide you in the ways of his covenant. Seek him. Trust him. He's not out to get you. Do not be afraid of him. Come to God in faith. Ask him to strengthen your faith and to lead you in obedience. He will do it. At the same time, there is also a warning. Even though 1 Corinthians 7 calls the children of believers clean and holy, this does not mean they have been automatically regenerated or born again. Your status does not allow you to embrace a life of sin or unbelief. Covenant children, you must take care not to turn away from Christ. If you reject Christ and the blood of Christ, there can be no salvation for you. Take care that there is never in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care that you do not embrace a life of sin, or there will be judgment. Finally, let me also leave you with some comfort. The children of believers belong to the assembly of the people of God. Death does not cut them off from belonging to that assembly. Rather, they have simply joined the assembly of God's people in heaven. You can know that. I think of those among us who have suffered miscarriages or perhaps stillbirths or even the death of a child. As difficult as those things may be, take comfort also. Your children are with your covenant God in heaven. So do not fear, but be at peace and praise your covenant God. Amen.